you know, there's a difference between a job and a dream, obviously. You know, everybody knows that. But the other difference is that if you really love something and it's your dream, you better be willing to do it for free as long as it takes for somebody to realize you should be paid to do it. Hello, and welcome to the Hollywood Hustle Podcast, where we bring the stories and struggles of artists climbing the ladder of success and how they survive the city of dreams, Los Angeles. My name is Daniel, and I'm your host as always. Unfortunately, once again, for the intros and outros, Michael and I are flying solo. Uh, you know, the thing is, Michael and I live about 45 minutes away from each other. Uh, so anytime we need to do an interview or um, schedule uh, uh, intros and outro recordings or a meeting or any other kind of collaborative effort, um, we have to really plan. We have to plan our days because, we I mean, we also have personal lives. I have a family. He has a girlfriend and he has other he has his acting and his acting classes. I have my writing. And so we have to really plan when we're going to meet. And so sometimes we have to decide if we're going to do an interview together or if we're going to do the intros and outros together because we record those usually the week before an in- episodes are going to be released. That way we can give any more any updated information that's happened since the interview happened. Um, but we have to make that decision on when we're going to get together. And most of the time, probably 99.9% of the time, we'll choose to do an interview together over the intros and outros together. And this week we had a really awesome interview scheduled, and it was definitely worth both of us being there for that. Uh, so once again, I'm flying solo. You'll be able to hear Michael's lovely voice on the next episode. Uh, but again, we're uh, you know I'm on this episode, but Michael and I are both on the next episode, so no worries there. There's nothing going on where Michael and I can't be in the same room with each other or anything like that. I don't want to cause any rumors. Hashtag no rumors. So here's the thing that's happening today. Last week, we announced that this week's episode series would be musician and lead singer of Disciples of Babylon, uh, talent manager Eric Knight. Due to some confusion with some dates, uh, we've actually had to push his interview back a week. My, uh, w- one of the things that's great about Eric is he loves the show, and we love his music, and we love his band, and he has been kind enough to offer us a chance to play a single in full from his new album that's not out yet on the podcast. And we are so stoked. It's called Freedom. The ep- album's going to be called the, Dis- uh, the Fall of Babylon. We're so excited to be able to air this song. We're also going to be play- playing some of his other music as transition songs, and I think we'll play one other full-length song on the uh, one of the episodes. But he- there's a contract with a radio station in the UK uh, to play the song first. So we even on a podcast, we can't release that song until they release it first. So next Thursday... Uh, the 26th, I believe, we will be able to release that song. Uh, the time it will have passed for the UK station to release it. So on Thursday, episode two of Eric Knights, you will hear the single from the Disciple of Babylon's new album, uh, The Fall of Babylon, called Freedom. And we are super stoked to do it. Uh, so we've had to push his episodes back a week. So this week, we have a wonderful guest, uh, Mr. Josh Otter of Otter Theory Productions. Otter's a filmmaker and a director and a writer, and he is fantastic. In Act 1 with Josh Otter, we discuss a shy kid's journey from Aurora, Illinois to Las Vegas, Nevada, until he finally finds his true home in Los Angeles. We discuss his earliest memories of film and developing his continued love and passion for it. We discuss starting a punk rock group, staying in touch with his love of film when he can't really work on it, and how he used to use his work to move to L.A. 
Finally, we discuss directing independent films, sacrifices it takes to do what you love, the process of putting a production team together, and Josh's experience of getting his most recent film into the festival circuit, and so much more. So please, sit back in your director's chair, get a PA to get you coffee, relax, and enjoy my interview with our good friend of the show, Mr. Josh Otter of Otter Theory Productions. Originally from Aurora, Illinois, our guest's journey has taken him across the country from Las Vegas, Nevada, to finally landing in Los Angeles, California, where he has truly embraced his calling as a filmmaker. Under his production company, Otter Theory Productions, he has directed such short films as Wayward Pain, The Twelfth Step, and The Land of Happy Dreams, which was just screened at the 20th Dances with Films Festival. Ladies and gentlemen, please help me welcome our friend and guest, Mr. Josh Otter. What's up, man? Hey, Josh. What's going on, buddy? How was that? How was that introduction? Was that good? was great. Yeah. Do you, do you feel like it needed to be bigger? Uh, no. Like, no, ladies pretty... and gentlemen, boys and girls. <laughs> no, no, I'm a pretty, I'm a pretty somber guy. So yeah, that was so good that for me. Worked for yeah, that worked for me. Yeah, personality. yeah. Yeah, I stay behind the camera. I don't need all that <laughs> pomp and circumstances that the actors need. You know what I'm saying? You're not like, I want to be in front of the camera. <laughs> no. it's my time, mine. No, no. I, but I always try to like, um, so like when we do Q and A's, mm-hmm. like for films at the festivals and stuff, I try to take the actors with because I'm like, they want that stuff, right? Right, right, right? And they all go like dead silent. Like they all just stand there. Like, I'm like, all right, so I guess you really do need me to write you lines. <laughs> like I need to write you lines. That's how it goes. See, that's so. insane because I'm like, anytime I've ever been in a Q&A as one of like the panelists, I don't ever get asked questions. And I'm probably the one person that would be like, please, <laughs> like I'm ready to talk. But you're a writer too. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think that helps. I think most mm-hmm. of the ones, you know, they're like pretty much predominantly actors and I guarantee you know? all of them say they're really good at improv too <laughs> <laughs> they lie yeah probably well let's let's start at the beginning alright All right. Um, you you were born in Aurora, Illinois no I was um, well pretty close I was born in, a, in Naperville which is right okay. right near Aurora how far um, out of Chicago is that just kind of for a reference for people it's just like 30, 30 minutes. 30 minutes? That's 30, not bad. 45 minutes? No, it's pretty close. It's like, a, like I'm judging where you're from. No, yeah. that's terrible. You should have been born closer to Chicago. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know what Aurora is famous for, right? Uh, Wayne's World? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I was actually late to school because of the filming of the second one. Really? They, yeah. They had the main street to my school blocked. Oh, so. that's hilarious. Yeah, what were they, do you know what they were filming? No, they just had, I don't even know if they were there with the, just the car was driving down the street. Their, mm. their little, you know, Pinto or whatever. Right, right, right. They just kept driving it up and down the street. So interesting. I was like, that's a good excuse to be late for school, right? right? Wayne's World was making me late. Yeah. And she was like, whatever yeah <laughs> liar yeah no kidding <laughs> so uh tell us about your family do you have a big family small family uh no i have a pretty small family um my dad's still back there he's uh so yeah i was in naperville and then we moved out to the country like rural parts like an hour and a half outside chicago and mm-hmm. like farmland of illinois mm-hmm. and then moved eventually back to aurora my dad's still out there he was in farmland up until like a couple months ago and then he moved back to aurora okay my mom is in vegas so that's kind of how i ended up there for a while and then I have, um, you know, a brother, some nieces and nephews, but a pretty small family. They're all scattered around. Like, I only see my family, like, once a year or something. Now, are any of them in the industry in some way, theater, any kind of filmmaking or writing? No, not really. My my brother was in theater when he was younger, mm-hmm. but um, just, like, stage plays at school and stuff like that. I was the only one that kind of gravitated towards this so he didn't kind of he didn't follow no those all the way through no you're the only ridiculous uh, yeah one. i'm the only one that was dumb enough to try <laughs> this. so so what what um what do you what, what what's your first memory of like film so 
when I was a kid, my dad was part owner of a video store. Mm -hmm. So, and this is when I was really, really young. So he had, um, I remember going into the video store and there was like a, it was split into two sections, like the kids section, you know, and then the normal, like, you know, um, action movies and stuff like that. But there was a dedicated little kid section. He had all these stuffed animals and stuff like that. And so I would just like go chill in the corner with these stuffed animals and watch movies and then slowly drift over to like the other side and watch like Jaws and Terminator <laughs> and stuff like that. Cause he wasn't you can, looking. Yeah. Cause you can only watch the kids movies for so long. Right. So, so I started watching those kind of movies like way before I ever should have, you know, <laughs> like literally I, I mean, I probably saw like full metal jacket when I was like nine or 10, you know, oh, wow. like I'm talking like, yeah, I asked my mom one time, I'm like, why, why'd you let me do that? <laughs> and As she was like, crying into a pillow. No, she was, she said like, um, they, they determined like when I was real young that I could very much decipher fiction from reality. Okay. Like as a kid, I immediately knew what was fake and what wasn't like mm -hmm. jaws didn't scare me. I knew I was watching a movie about a shark in the water and stuff like that. So they, they didn't really have, I mean, obviously they kept me away from like the, the super like, like adult stuff, you right. know, but I guess Full Metal Jack is kind of, a, <laughs> so not the super, super adult stuff. But, but they didn't keep you away from that first 20 yeah. minutes of, of that movie. Yeah. But uh, like, uh, yeah, that stuff I watched, um, you know, pretty much immediately when I was a kid, I started watching movies. So how did that affect you as a child? What was, did that make you kind of more of a daydreamer where you did that kind of put that creative fire in you yeah so totally man when when we moved out to the country like our our nearest neighbor was like half a mile away so mm. like you have nothing to do like you got to entertain yourself right and so like i literally burned through i think i wore out three copies of the original star wars on vhs like no joke like i watched it every day mm. for like three years and and michael can tell you i'm a massive like i have I, my office is like a star wars mural and stuff mm. like that there's just like paintings and artwork and lightsabers and masks i collect everything you know so um i just kind of fell into always like watching movie and tv as a kid because there was nothing else to do like you couldn't go hang out with your friends down the street like my friends were six miles away you know <laughs> right so that's just kind of what I fell into. Do you yeah. have it set up so when you open your door at your apartment that like the Darth Vader theme turns on? <laughs> so when you you walk in, it's like dun 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 dun. dun I should, dun. yeah, because like even my wife, my wife's a huge Star Wars fan, so everybody'd be like, oh, there's no way she would totally let me, no, you know, because like, she, she loves she, it she too. Like, yeah, she'd be like, no, I'm walking into. Yeah, that. literally, like for like anniversaries and stuff, she buys me lightsabers and masks. <laughs> like she straight up knows right, she's cool with it. Josh, how many times a week do you guys have lightsaber fights? <laughs> be honest. Um. Not as much as we should. You know? yeah. <laughs> is that how you handle fights? Yeah, she. Like, yeah. If you want, if you want to go eat somewhere, and she it's wants like, to eat somewhere else. That's how you decide. That's it. I'm grabbing the Vader. <laughs> you can take the Kylo Ren. No, screw <laughs> that. I'm Vader. <laughs> what What's your earliest memories of creating a story or creating uh, something? So, ever since I was a kid, like I've I've written stuff. Like mm -hmm. I didn't really have the means to film stuff, you know? Right. Um, I mean, we would all, I think, I'm sure you guys did too when we were kids, like the Star Wars action figures. Like I would play like whole out scenes with the action figures and stuff like that. And, and you know, I'd dump them in the pool and they'd be swimming and like having water battles and stuff like that. Um, but I'd also constantly be like writing stuff mm -hmm. and, and everything is even as a kid, like now I'm, it's, it's like exclusively filmmaking and, and film writing, but I would write 
short stories and I was an uber nerd. I would write poems and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Like I just wrote anything like, um, I wrote music when I was, um, you know, in my, in my twenties, I sang for a punk band and I wrote, you know, wrote the lyrics to the songs and stuff like that. So. I, I think you're the fifth person that we've talked to that was in a punk band yeah. <laughs> at some point in their lives. It's probably that generation, right? like, every, like I was in a punk band, uh, and I think like, at least three other guests were in punk bands. Really? Yeah. 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 I was in a punk <laughs> band in Vegas, man. Nice. What now? What caused the move from? I mean, you said your mom was there. Was that the major major reason to move from? Yeah, kind of. So my parents separated um, when I was like fourteen or something, and my mom worked for. It was right when the. um, I'm probably older than you guys, so uh, a little bit. It was right when the riverboats were starting up back in Illinois. You know, (laughs) back in them days. so she, she got a job there and that kind of like led her out to Vegas because, you know, she's kind of promoted up through the ranks of the riverboats and met somebody there. And then he was from Vegas cause he was just out there helping. So he ended up there. Was your mom a riverboat captain? I wish man, that would, be awesome. that would have been awesome. <laughs> yeah, no, she sold tickets for the riverboat, but I wish they let her, let her uh, be the captain. That'd be pretty cool. Right now. Uh, how old were you when you moved? So, um, yeah, I graduated from high school in Illinois. And then as soon as I graduated from high school, I had a partial academic scholarship to UNLV. And I, I was looking into UNLV anyways, cause my mom was out there and you know, at least she had some family there. So I moved out to Vegas and started going to UNLV and never finished. Um, because was, was you know, your major theater or film or some sort of, ironically, no, I was, um, computer science major. Okay. Yeah. I wanted to study film, but again, back when I went to college first, it was still exclusively um, film, shooting on film. Right. And so it was Super 16, and you had to buy your own materials to mm. make, like, everything in class. And I just couldn't afford it. Like, I, I badly wanted to, but in no way could afford to go to film school. So I, like became friends with some of the kids that did make it into film school. So like I would work on their student films and I would like be in their student films. Man, I was in this one. I played a a necrophiliac. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> who was who was in a support group for necrophiliacs? No, oh, at least he's getting help. And this the instructor dies. <laughs> so we're all left in the room with a dead body trying to decide what we should do with it because we're all recovering. That's amazing. But I'm this the one dude. Idea. Yeah, I was the one dude not recovering. I'm like, come on, this is what we do. Like <laughs> that was that was my role. I was that's the, such a great that's such a great like a weird twist yeah. on that whole like rehab. That's such a great idea. Yeah, yeah. The the um actually the the girl that wrote and directed that she's out here as an editor she just directed wonder woman (laughs) (laughs) that'd be awesome (laughs) yeah she's an editor out here though oh that's cool yeah i think she's worked on some big stuff like her and stuff like that so did you work kind of did you have to go into the workforce early to kind of make some money and things like that yeah so my mom was out there but um due to some circumstances like you know family and stuff like that i had to move out pretty much immediately so i was out of my own like at 18 and oh, wow. six months or something. Um, so yeah, I kind of had to, you know, fend for myself. I had to find a place to live. I had to pay, pay my way, stuff mm-hmm. like that. So I had to immediately join the workforce. What was your first job? So in Vegas, 
I had a cool job. I was a manager of the rides at the top of the stratosphere. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, but like the night shift. So like just part, like, come on, man. I was a 19-year-old working six at night till two in the morning on roller coasters at a casino with like just partying college drunk kids. It was crazy. <laughs> it was ridiculous, man. Yeah. I bet you got some good stories from that one. Yeah. <laughs> not not rated for this show, I'm sure. I got one. You want to hear it? Yeah, so, sure, absolutely. You know that crazy um, cult, Heaven's Gate? The the ones that um, killed themselves with a oh. hellbout comet because they thought there was a spaceship behind the comet? Yeah. They came to ride the stratosphere like the week before they killed themselves because oh. they wanted... they. They wanted to see the comment on the big shot, That's and so like crazy. I gotta load all those people. They because they had their, they were the ones that had like the they all wore like the same Pumas or something like that and the same like purple uniforms, mm-hmm. and they all wanted to sit on the same side of the ride, which was weird because it wasn't the side facing the Las Vegas Strip, which is what everybody wanted. So I was like, yeah, it's no worries. Like nobody wants to sit over there. You can all like I'll put you over there. And so like I loaded that whole cult onto the ride, and then like a week later they like mass suicide with That's the. That's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was crazy, man. That, when you saw it on, did you go, guys, guys, yeah. guys? I know them. Yeah, seriously. It's like it's my friends. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's insane. Yeah, it's that's, pretty cool. You were, you were a part of history. Yeah, that's right, man. <laughs> you, you're a footnote yeah, in no that doubt. historical context. Now, was it hard? You said you kind of worked on some other people that were in film school. Kind of, Was it a struggle not doing kind of what you loved a lot, um, not being able to kind of pursue that immediately? Or had you decided, like, this is what I wanted to pursue at that time? Yeah, it was hard. Like, I really wanted to be doing it, but... I just knew there was not a physical way at that point with mm-hmm. the financial situation and stuff. So that's why I did gravitate towards music because at least there, you know, it's cheaper. Like, come on, a punk band. Like, what do we need? Like a couple, you know, a couple amps and a guitar and, mm-hmm. and just yell into a mic, you know? So like <laughs> 10 bucks, we can be out performing. And at least like it got me to do something creative. Right. Because it's weird. Like I'm, I'm extremely introverted. Uh, like near near agoraphobic probably <laughs> except for when I'm doing artistic stuff mm-hmm. like on a film set or on a stage for some reason I have no social anxiety whatsoever like uh, so I've always like needed that kind of outlet you know mm-hmm. um, so yeah I, I wanted to be doing film but just couldn't do it so gravitated towards music for a while right how and did how did that go how did what what did you were you able to do anything really interesting or entertaining with it or was it just kind of just stay kind of in the garage so we had a really weird band man we had a um our drummer was in vegas getting his master's degree in percussion like he was like like the marimba which is like this giant like wooden Mm -hmm. um yeah he was like a master of that thing you know and so he was playing drums with us to keep his speed up like to keep his chops up with marimba so he was playing with us because we were a speed band you know Mm -hmm. and then our bass player had formally toured with like a top level hardcore band in the Philippines. I mean, he was like a, um, like a top level bass player. And our guitar player was absolutely horrible. And all I could do was scream. So like, it was like a half of a band that like probably should have been playing like tours and half of a band that didn't belong in that garage at all. So you were the lead singer. Of <laughs> yeah, the group. yeah. What yeah. was the band name? Indecent Exposure. Indecent. Okay. Well, <laughs> I can see. It, I, mean, I see where it works. <laughs> yeah. So we no. I mean, we played around town, and like we had some small label like offer us a deal, but it was like um, is really bad. You know, it was like you know you 
we own you forever and mm-hmm. you know all that kind of you know that typical kind of for 10,000 years yeah first child. yeah it's like literally when you're reading the contract it's like perpetuity in the universe I'm like really you needed to stipulate the universe like <laughs> that really gives me confidence that you're looking out for me yeah, that you right. want to make sure that I'm covered in the entire universe by the way for this podcast we need to sign that <laughs> your voice is now ours for the rest of the year your life and past the universe yeah no kidding um, have you what was your like do you remember what like your most popular song was <laughs> You really want to know it? Is it? Can you say it on this podcast? Yeah, yeah. So, um, we, I lived in this. Uh, I, I shared a. I rented a room in a house way out on the far north side of Vegas, and it was it was a large property because my roommate actually had horses and stuff like that. So it was like out there where you think nobody would care. But every day when we practiced, my neighbor would call the cops on us. And the cops would come over and they were super nice guys. It was like the middle of the afternoon. They just hang out and like listen and be like, eh, there's nothing they can do. Like you just playing. So I wrote a song, a speed punk song to the to the rhythm of uh, Mr. Rogers called Won't You Beat My Neighbor? And uh, that was oh boy. That, that was what we were known for. <laughs> <laughs> and decent exposure, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, buddy. What now you did you write a lot of the songs? Yeah, I wrote everything we sang. So how do you feel like, were you writing any like screenplays or scripts at this time? Yeah, well, I wouldn't say, I still didn't know like technically what a screenplay even was, like how you would write a screenplay, but I was constantly writing down stories and concepts and ideas. Um, I've always, like now, because the digital age, obviously I have my phone with me at all times, but I've always just like kept notepads and like constantly just write down like log lines. Again, didn't know at the time they were quote unquote log lines, but just any concept that popped into my head, I would just write down like, oh, what if this happened to this? Or what if this happened? And then I'd try to expand on them and stuff like that. But it wasn't until I got back into school that I actually knew how to structure and what a, what the form of a screenplay was and stuff like that. Did being in the band and, and, and being a part of a band and writing the songs, has that had, do you think that's had any effect on your screenwriting form or your directing style or how you work with other people? Yeah, I think being able to, like I put a lot of personal stuff into my songs because you kind of have to, like that's the, so it, allowed me to kind of open myself to that in a screenplay sense, you know? Like a lot of times you come in, if you're coming right out of school and you don't have much life experience or something, you're kind of sheltered and you try to write what you think the world wants. But instead this kind of just freed me and allowed me to like just write what I think I should be writing, Mm -hmm. you know? So I don't know if like the band per se dictates my style, but it definitely did give me the ability to kind of um, openly express myself. You know, you felt a little more comfortable. Yeah, a piece of you out there. Yeah, exactly. Okay. You know? um, when did film kind of come back into your life? When did you start really maybe gearing up a little more into that that world again? Yeah. So um, I kind of just did what everybody does. Just got a job, like worked in a cubicle, did that life, like worked in the computer world. I was a director of marketing for a casino and stuff. And it just, man, it sucked, you know, <laughs> like, and, and my wife, she's again, she's a huge movie fan too. So we'd, we'd go to indie movies all the time. And, you know, when we could find them in Vegas and we try to support the scene and like, you know, we, we were, you know, in a decent financial position and she just looked at me and said, you know, why don't you try it now? Like, what's, what's the harm? Like, you know, yeah, I was at that point, I was already in my early thirties and you could say like, maybe it had passed me by, but what, what's the harm in trying, right? Did you, did you meet your wife in Vegas? 
Yeah, yeah, we worked together at the a Venetian Casino. That's where okay. we met. Yeah, she hated me. Man. Yeah, you should you should ask her. Michael knows that has heard that story. Let's get her on the phone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was a very brash. I mean, as you know, like literally, when I, in order to get that job at the Venetian, the day before I applied, I had to wash blue dye out of my hair to go do a job oh. interview. So, <laughs> I I used to like train mixed martial arts and stuff. So I was a very uh, aggro teen, you know. And, <laughs> and when she first met me, she was like, "Oh man, what's this guy's deal?" You know? He's not punk rock band. <laughs> it's an exposure. That's right. <laughs> what uh, what was y'all's first date? Uh, we went with a group of people. So I think a friend of hers at work kind of noticed that, like we were kind of you know hitting on each other a little bit. So she set up this whole like group function. Mm-hmm. So like ten of us went out and like an hour into the the evening like eight of them had somehow found a way to go somewhere else you know um so we went to like uh i thought you were gonna say within an hour we were making out <laughs> like man no 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 um it's that blue hair that's right man we went to uh the wax museum the madame tussauds nice. yeah because it had just opened at the venetian we all had like free tickets and stuff so oh, we all cool. went to that yeah what was, was it, what was your favorite wax figure oh man they're all kind of freaky to be honest yeah i don't know if i like especially when they're smiling yeah that's when they're really creepy it's like uh, it's always like they're trying to suggest something "Uh, i don't know what you're trying to tell me what was happening during the creation of that wax statue that made him so happy what was he doing what was happening or like or somebody or they didn't smile like we we need to make this one smile and they're like well we don't have a picture of him smiling he's like just guess what it looks like (laughs) it looks nothing like that person smiling it's like i took the smile from george clooney and put it on brad Pitt. that's what i did uh so what was your so you you guys started dating Mm -hmm. um how long did y'all date before you Um, got engaged two years is she in the industry She's forced to be in the industry. So by day, um, she's a paralegal mm. uh, for a law firm in Santa Monica, but she's the like lead executive producer for our company. Oh, cool! And uh, does all the she does a lot of um, UP, like unit production manager stuff on mm. set and stuff like that. She does a lot of the background, paperwork, yeah. office stuff. Yeah, I mean against her desire, I think, but she's extremely supportive and right. just wants to you know wants to see me succeed. So anything that she can do to kind of lighten that side of it, she takes. Over. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. And like just general consulting, like, um, man, she, every time I edit a film, she has to watch like all 600 versions of the cut and she has to read <laughs> all 300 drafts of the script and stuff <laughs> like that and doesn't, you know, just kind of always is down for, you know, it's like, I mean, you're married, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you know, it's like the one person that you know has always got your back. Like, you know, you know that what they're telling you, it's not like everybody else is out to get you, but also by the same token, like it's the one person you know is is out to, to make you succeed, like wants you to succeed. So everything you get from them, you know is criticism that's driven based on desire for success mm-hmm. not not any other ulterior motive and like i said not that other people have a ton of ulterior motives but i'm just saying like you know for certain that mm-hmm. person doesn't well michael yeah. michael knows my wife very well and 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 um i see this with admiration and love she is brutally honest <laughs> like she tells it like it is and her, her thing is would you rather me lie to you yeah and she like if it sucks she'll say this sucks. I mean, like you said, like to her point, would you rather I tell you it's great when it sucks? Like you'd rather like way before it reaches the world, know what you're dealing with and be able to correct at that point, you know, because there's, there's other people out in the world that won't give you that second chance. So she's, she's, 
making sure that that first chance is the best that it can be. And, and you know, that's what you want. You Do know? you run down the original ideas with her like, hey, what if a guy came into a sushi place with a gun? Yeah, like, yeah. Do you throw those out to her all the time? Yeah, I throw everyone like, because, I mean, you too as a writer, you know, like we all have a million concepts, but mm-hmm. can only write so many of them and, you know. And actually yeah. flesh out right. the actual story out of them. Yeah, so I'm always throwing st- stuff at the wall. I mean, like, hey, what do you think of this? And it's like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's okay. Oh, yeah, okay, we get it. Just do something with a cowboy. <laughs> right, yeah, but then there's the ones where it's like, oh, that's really cool. And you're like, all right, I need to... I need to focus on that, it. you know. Yeah. So, how long did y'all live to like? How long were y'all? Did y'all live together in in Los Angeles or Las Vegas before you moved here? Yeah. So, um, we were in Vegas for way longer than I ever wanted to be. <laughs> like, uh, you know, so she encouraged me to go back to film school, which again, like, um, I am super like anxious out in the world. Like, I don't do well in crowds and stuff like that. Um, <laughs> selling myself really good like come work with me <laughs> i'm quiet i really don't care for my actors and i don't like crowds so let's go have fun <laughs> but your dating profile must be top notch <laughs> uh, yeah it's like a, a former cage fighter with a punk band who likes to you know but um my number one hit <laughs> yeah be my neighbor, be my neighbor. yeah um but no like like Especially when you're kind of older, like when you're first in your 30s and you're like, oh, you know, do I go back to a community college? Like, that's kind of intimidating. You're going to be like with 19 year olds that are like, what the hell is this old dude doing here? Like, no matter how young you are, like in your heart, they're still like, oh, what's this, you know, what's this old creeper and doing here? You're trying to relate with them. Yeah. Because you're there with them, like as a team. Right. Yeah. And so it's like, yeah, guys, totally out, bro. <laughs> yeah. So, so she encouraged me and, um, and we started, you know, I went back into film school and, and it went, it went really well. Like, um, you know, the vid one or whatever they call the intro to film back then, you know, that was fine. We just ran around and did little like skits and subjects during school. But the video two, they kind of did a thing. It was, it was kind of like the quote unquote, like master class at that community. And it was that each student could submit a concept and then one of them got selected. Everybody had to make a film for that semester, but one student's concept would get selected as the one the whole class had to make. So like not only did they have to go make their own, they had to work on the one that was selected because that's what we would do in class. And mine actually got selected for that. So all the students were producing my short film and and the teacher was extremely encouraging and said, you know, hey, I, I think you can go somewhere with this, you know. So um my wife grew up in Southern California and never wanted to come back. Like, she's like, I've, I liked it, but it's got way too many problems. But then the moment this kind of started happening, she said, look, you know, whatever it takes, like I'll sacrifice, I'll, I'll deal with it. Let's go try it, you know? So we lived there for, for quite a while. Like, man, I was there for like 15 years, you know? Like, um, because once you get established, it's hard. Like I had, I don't have kids, but I had um, a lot of dogs. Like my dogs are my children. I have three dogs right now. I had four at the time. So like trying to, I obviously couldn't rent a place, you know? So we had to like get a house and like, you can't really get a, a loan unless you have a job in the state. So like everything had to line up perfectly for us to be able to make it. And it just like became our goal, no matter what it took to line those pieces up so that we could get here. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and how, yeah. how did you line those? What was your, what was your process for planning and, and preparing to move here? The best, the, the, the thing that really helped me do it was I, I left like working full time for us, for a set corporation and became a consultant with a consulting firm. Mm-hmm. And I had them write into the contract that they wanted me to be based in LA. 
And then that allowed me to get, you know, mortgage and stuff out here. Um, they didn't really need me to base to be based in LA, but that was a stipulation for me taking the job with them. So I kind of lined that up so that we could get out here. And then literally we just kept, we drive down every weekend and her friend's a realtor in Long Beach, but she would come all the way up here to the, the Valley, like the Woodland Hills, Burbank area and line up like 10 houses, 12 houses. And we just rushed through like, like 12 houses on a weekend, go back home, put in three offers, get outbid on every one of them, come back the next weekend, try it all over again. And finally, like after, like we kept getting pushed a little further out, a little further out, cause you know, it gets cheaper as you get further out. And you know, after a couple months of doing that, we finally found a place and, and, and headed on out. Like, man, it's been like five and a half years now. Uh, what was the time, uh, time frame between, hey, I want you to move. I, I know you can do this. I want to support you. Let's move to LA to, hey, we did it. We're here. What was the kind of time span that happened? It was literally only like, I'd say a year at most oh, wow. probably. Yeah. I mean, once, once it seemed like there was, you know, you know, uh, even, even, I don't even know if it was necessarily that there had to be a potential for success. It's that she saw the drive was there. Like, you know, whether, whether I succeed or not is irrelevant. It's that the drive is there to make the attempt wholeheartedly. And that's what I, that's the passion well, that exists. The same you know? idea, like it's worth you trying. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. We've always said like, you know, however it goes down, at least when we're old on a porch together, we can say, Oh, you remember when we made those movies and when we did that, like you can know, we can never like look back and regret things we didn't try like we tried it you know whether it works or not it's right. worth the shot and if that's something you love to do and that's like somewhere you feel comfortable that it's definitely worth it totally yeah i mean it's kind of like it's like the adage that i have a i have a niece uh, a bunch of nieces and nephews but they're all kind of getting a you know a little older now my niece is going to be 21 and i always tell her that you know there's a difference between a job and a dream, obviously, you know, everybody knows that. But the other difference is that if you really love something and it's your dream, you better be willing to do it for free as long as it takes for somebody to realize you should be paid to do it. Absolutely. Like, and that's what it takes. Like, you know, and not only do I do it for free, like I pay to play in this space. Like I, I fund most of my movies. It takes me a long time to save up to do a short film, but I want to play in this space and that's what it takes. You Absolutely. Know? What, um, what was your first impressions of LA when you moved here? I love LA, man. Like, so by day I work remotely for a company. So I work out of my house in the morning and it's a East coast based company. So I work like, uh, their hours. So I work six in the morning till two in the afternoon and then I can go do whatever I oh, need to nice. for film. Yeah. So it's really advantageous for making film, but also like, because I work from home, I think I like it a little bit more than most do. Like I do feel bad for my, my wife. She drives like only like 18 miles and it's like an hour and 10 minutes each way or something like this. So I'm not sure I would love it as much if I didn't have the situation that I do, but, but I, I loved it immediately, you know, just like everything about it. I'm in awe of like, I just, you know, I love, I love driving around the city. We used to, you know, when we first moved here, we do like what we call like adventures. We just drive a direction as far as we wanted to and see what we could find. You know, like, you know, we drove to the house that they used ET, you know, they used for filming ET. And, and like I said, we'd go to all the Karate Kid locations and the Terminator 2 locations and stuff like, it's just as a kid growing up, seeing all this stuff, like in rural Illinois, like looking out your window, seeing a cow, like I would have never believed I'd be living in this world and even playing in this world and so it's still to this day i'm in awe of it every time so what's what what would you say is the biggest differences between las vegas and los angeles <laughs> other than the spelling of Los? uh just kidding it's the same yeah um there's a lot of differences um 
from a film perspective, I think Vegas has changed a lot too. I think they're trying to become more film friendly. They just they just had a tax incentive um, approved and stuff like that. But in general, like there, at least when I was in film school, you could just go out and film whenever you wanted. Like mm-hmm. nobody was like you know rightfully so here like they don't know the difference between me and like a big budget cbs tv show like they they need the same protections for the public that they need from me as they do from them so they're much more out on the on the lookout you know and, and i don't like i said not necessarily in a in a deviant way but that's just they are because there's there's you can't you know, take those breaks just because we're a smaller budget operation. They're like, nobody cared, man. We're like, we take a camera out to the side of the road and just start filming something. And you know, the cops drive by and wave at me, you know, and you know, yeah, you want a cameo with a cop car, you know, they didn't care, you know? So it was, it was much different in that sense. Um, and just in general, like the lifestyle, like Vegas is kind of super landlocked like anything else but vegas is four hours away like you got to drive four hours to la or four hours to phoenix or four hours to to parts of utah Mm -hmm. so it seems like a very like kind of landlocked world whereas here like you can drive an hour and be in you know in the mountains and drive you know an hour and a half and be in you know the snow and stuff like that so it's kind of uh a lot different in terms of that Nice. I'd like to point out just a correction. I was right the first time. Yeah, Los Angeles yeah. Lost. LAS, LOS. Um, <laughs> I just want to point that out because I know somewhere there's somebody going, what? No, they are spelled differently. You were right the first time. Oh, I got a comment. Oh, I got a comment. Uh, <laughs> that's how, uh, let's, I don't think that's how our listeners talk. Uh, so what were your first steps when you moved here to kind of start pursuing that dream of making your own films? What was the first thing you did to really move towards that? So I immediately enrolled in the UCLA extension program. So it's like the, the night school for filmmaking in the director's certificate program. Um, I'd done, so like I said, I, I went back to community college in Vegas and did quite a bit of that. Went through all of their video courses, all their editing courses, some of their screenwriting courses. So I had a decent basis already at that point in terms of the technical aspects of film. Um, and very much the technical, because like for majority of my video classes, it was a professional cinematographer. So he was a lot more focused on, you know, aspect ratios and, and compositional shots and stuff, and not a lot of like working with actors that just wasn't his specialty. Um, so when I moved out here, I started film school, one, to kind of fill in those gaps, you know, but also to try to find the community, because it's like, where are you gonna go to find people that wanna make movies other than a film school, right? Um, and the extension program, it's, I think it's changed a little bit. I think it's a lot more like online based now than it was when I started it like five years ago. But then it was a lot of uh, working professionals that would come because it was night school. So like they would, they had a lot more access to actually working professionals. So like my, the producing for directing, you know, like they teach you how to interact with producers and what producers do. The teacher was like um, Tarantino's line producer from Reservoir Dogs. And like we had a class called uh, Sound for Directors. Again, like how a director needs to interact with the sound guy. And the teacher was um, James Cameron's onset sound recorder for Avatar. So like not only did we have a community to meet people, but also like top level industry professionals were giving us experience and, and insight into the industry. So that's kind of what I thought was the first route in. Ironically, I didn't meet a lot of people there that wanted to make films. Mm. Um, they were all in film school, but 
I, I don't like I. There's not a single person from class that I still make movies. There's a teacher that I still make that I still stay in touch with. He pulled me on set as a as a first AC one time, and I still shoot stuff for him. But most of the kids, like I don't know, I don't know what it was. I think because it was kind of the night school, they were more just like, oh, I'm gonna be famous. I just want to be famous, you know. And like it was hard to get them to want to just go out and grind out some crazy short film. Like they're like, no, I. I want to go with that guy on the set of Avatar. I'm like, yeah, we all do, buddy. But it, <laughs> it doesn't quite work that way. I mean, you can grab some grip tape and pretend like you belong, but I think they'll yeah. kick you out pretty quick. Yeah, you know? first thing you need to do is make a film in an alley for yeah. nothing with one person and a camera. Right, yeah. So so that's where I started. But And like I said, I, I'm i glad I did because it did fill in some gaps, you know, and um, and I got to work a lot more with actors. It's actually how I met Michael on a um, class called Directing the Actor. So he came in and did a scene for me and stuff. How was he? He's good, man. Like pretend like he's not here. No, like, so it was, it was so weird, right? It was the first time that I was... Worked with a terrible actor. I know. (laughs) (laughs) It was the first time I considered quitting the entire thing. (laughs) If all actors are like, oh, this is going to be a tough uphill battle. No, it was weird. Like, um, so there's this class called Directing the Actors, right? Mm -hmm. I wonder what and, that class is about. <laughs> yeah, and the teacher literally said we had to pick a scene and we had to cast people to come in. And I'm like, I'm like, come on, man, who's really gonna come in for that? Like, like, literally, the casting call was like, come into my class in front of all the other students and act like an idiot, you know? And, and like, we got a lot of responses. You'd you be know? surprised. I know. I mean, I, when I first moved here, that's a lot of the stuff I did. Was I saw a lot of like film school need actors people type stuff yeah and i realized it's it's it was it was probably advantageous for them and not so much because they're working with me because like again the teachers are working professionals so the teacher of that class you know he's, he hasn't done anything big but he's got like 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 20 or 25 directing credits so like they not only are you know get to work themselves and get to work the, how, how they perform and how they work with the director and stuff but also perform in front of somebody who has the potential to hire them mm-hmm. um so yeah we got we got a lot of people and um and and Michael was the the best that we saw for the the male lead mm-hmm. of the scene, and then he also totally saved me because the one that we picked for the female lead, she ditched on me like Ooh. two days before the class. So then Michael played the female lead, right? <laughs> he he did both at the he same time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, like I was on a business trip down in Florida, and I called this guy that doesn't even know me. Like he's he's talked to me once, and he's coming in front of my class. Like probably thinks I'm some nut job. And I'm like, dude, do you know anybody? And he was doing, uh, you were doing train spotting, right? Yeah. yeah. He was doing a stage performance of train spotting. He's like, yeah, there's this girl, Allison, who's amazing. And so he got her. Yeah, yeah, he got her to come in, you know, last minute, and the two of them just like blew it out of the park in front of the class and stuff. And mm-hmm. so, I worked with both of them quite a bit after that. I was really hoping you'd have like one side of Michael is the girl, one side of Michael is the guy, and all the scene is in profiles. So he just has to turn <laughs> one way, turn the other way. I think we just came up with a concept. We should. I'm we, thinking about it. Yeah, we, we need to write that. Film. Michael, <laughs> we're gonna go with somebody else. I'm sorry. <laughs> we had to recast. In, in the part of Michael Lutheran, we've cast to somebody else he's gonna be playing you playing the role. <laughs> <Fantastic>. <laughs> so how has the how has the practice uh of uh i mean okay how has the practice of the art of making a film affected you i would say i mean in in so many ways like i said first of all just like socially like i've really 
learned how to kind of step out into the world more. Uh, I'm still kind of not the kind of guy to go to a bunch of networking functions and stuff like that, which is probably bad. Like that does help in this industry to go out and do those things, but it's just not me. And I get, I get so awkward that I come off as kind of like a jerk because I get quiet and don't say anything. And so people think I'm like arrogant or something like that. But in general, it's just helped me like not only become more, you know, open socially, but also like there's such a need to like express what, what's in my brain that I just have to, you know, and, and I don't know what I would do if I couldn't, you know, kind of make movies. I just love it so much. I know that sounds obviously everybody on this podcast is like, oh, I love making movies. But like literally, I don't know. Like I said, I, I don't just do it for free. I pay to play in this space. Like I fund my movies because I, I love making movies. There's, uh, you know, as as painful as they are, like everybody knows, like it's not it's like this weird kind of like masochistic sense. Like it's tough to make a movie. Like it's hard to, especially in a town like this where you are competing, trying to get attention from the permit office when they got a guy from CBS in front of you. And, and like, obviously he's going to take precedence, you know? So it's a tough thing to do, but every time I walk off set, like there's nowhere else I would have rather been. And it's funny. I just came off. I shot a short film uh, like a week and a half ago. Bragger. <laughs> and everybody else is that way too it's the only place like literally we had this super stressful like shot where we were trying to do something we probably shouldn't have on our budget which is like a gimbal on a jib on a dolly on a track and it's this most insane intricate thing i could think up got it okay and uh and so like the dp and the gaffer are kind of arguing with each other like because we got to move move along and get this stuff done and yet still at the end of the day like everybody's like hugging each other as they walk out that it's the only place i've ever been where there can be like this crazy like aggression trying to get all the shots for the day and yet everybody is so happy that they were there to do it absolutely you know? it's it's this weird thing where there's there's at least one person i feel on a set as, as an actor or somebody, you know, maybe in the lower of the totem pole, there's one person you're going to think hates you mm-hmm. because they're, they're, they're in work mode. And so when they talk to you, it's very, it's business. And I feel like there's always that one person, they're like, this guy is a jerk. First AD. The the day, it's always like, the first AD. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? I, I, that's what I've, I've heard that a lot. <laughs> you're not the first person to say that. But then at the end of the day, they're like, hey, man, that was great. Thank you so much. For, like, and then you're like, oh. Maybe this guy is kind of, and then you see him at the rap party. They're the ones getting the drunkest, and like, like, dude, you were so good. I love you. Yeah, it, was the like, first, oh, yeah, it is the first AD. No, um, <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's a like I said, it's, and I'm I'm definitely like not at the studio level. I'm still working my way up. I'm still trying to get get it made. So you know, I There's hope nothing wrong with that. Yeah, no, totally. Like, um, you have to start somewhere, and you have to create a. No, I don't know. Maybe there are people that they get handed this industry, but I don't, I don't like even a cinematographer that I work with his, his father is, uh, has worked with Steven Spielberg for a very long time. He's not being handed anything. Like he still has to prove his worth in this industry. It's, that's the one thing about Hollywood is all they care about is the movie being successful. They don't care. Like it helps if you, if your dad knows Spielberg, he can walk you into a room and you can meet people and you can get on stuff easier and stuff like that. But it's not like you instantly like, Oh, you want to be the DP of this major shoot now? No, you still have to prove your worth. So yeah, I mean, I don't, you know, I don't think there's anything wrong with the, you know, the route that I'm still going, you know, I mean, obviously I want to, you know, the next goal is to make a feature, but you got to start showing your worth for people to want to come on set and work with you. How many short films have you made? Um, I think there's, 
there's four that are like credited and then there's a million that I've made throughout film school and mm -hmm. different little shots and you know projects and stuff like right. that so but like truly pulled together a decent sized crew and and made something that's you know worth putting out into the festival world it's I just shot the one I just did was the fourth one nice so. See, and, and you know how many people out there have made one about not many. Yeah, it's a tough thing, but it's you know, a tough thing. But hey, keep pushing, you know. Yeah, for sure. So, what's something as as a when you, when you were in film school, did you realize like directing and writing was kind of the focus you wanted to go to? Is there one that you lean towards more? Are you more a writer or are you more a director? If I had to choose, I would say I probably write to direct. Like mm -hmm. I wanted, I want to direct. Like right. I enjoy the creation, the final creation of the product. Right. Um, I, I do like to write, but it's a different, it's a totally different world. It's so solitary and it's so like, um, like self-critical and, mm -hmm. and difficult to get past your own brain when you're writing. Mm -hmm. Um, I like it. It's a, if it's a different type of challenge, but if you told me I had to choose one or the other, I would, mm -hmm. I would want to direct. So I, you're okay directing other people's stuff and, and you're open to directing other people's scripts and things like that. Yeah, totally. Um, I think that you have to work up to that though, mm -hmm. you know, because the truth is, especially like say the very first thing you ever make, if you don't absolutely love everything about that concept, mm -hmm. you're going to have a very hard time making it. Right. So I, you know, maybe there are some that right out of the gate direct other people's stuff, but I don't think I could have ever done that because I needed to truly have like 100% passion for those first couple projects to, to push through in realizing what it takes to make a movie, right? You know. So if you're looking for a director for your script, you should write uh, Josh at pitchjosh at aol.com. <laughs> you know, I did a I did a comedy short um, that somebody else wrote like a like a year ago. Um, it was a parody of the Steve Jobs movie. Um, so I like working with other people's stuff, and it's a different kind of challenge now to take somebody else's script and try to break it down and find your vision in it. You know, like it's different. And again, you're a writer, so you probably know. Like when you're writing it, you're visualizing it in your head so to take your own writing and to turn it into a film like to direct it is a lot easier absolutely and it's, it's hard to kind of let somebody else go no no that's not that's not what i had in mind but you're the, you're the right okay yeah <laughs> that's a tough be one better. that's the, that's really hard yeah uh what is what would you say you know you obviously you learn techniques and and things through through uh, uh school and stuff like that but obviously there's part of you that also needs to find your own uh, rhythm and your own uh, ways of dealing with actors and problems and sets and things like that. What's something that you do differently than maybe you were instructed in school? Is there something? Is there some kind of director uh, uh, job or, 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 or technique that you do a little differently or made your own? Yeah, I think everybody, even even when they teach you, they teach you kind of the concepts and the theories and like, you know, directed towards, but you still have to find, even with like, so, so like for the writing, like every writer has a different method. Some outline and some don't. And some outlines are like just 12 bullet points for the, you know, and others are literally like 10 page outline. It's the same thing with directing. Like, um, I'm extremely meticulous. So I've found specific 
like even programs like computer programs that I work with that step me through the process. So I do a lot of pre-production. So um, I do. I just heard a little bit of the uh, Chicago there. <laughs> oh, did just, it? Just a moment. <laughs> my, my, my wife's family is from Chicago, so I can hear it pretty well. Yeah, I don't do it much, but I think there's certain words that yeah, I say. That... Usually A's. Oh, yeah. The ah or mm-hmm. ah is usually where the Chicago comes out. People. So just I just want to point <laughs> that out. That's funny. <laughs> Find the Chicago. That's a new game. <laughs> So, they, yeah, I found um, like kind of my own method for how I prep for a movie. So I do detailed floor maps. I do extensive shot lists. I do camera maps on top of the floor maps. I do, um, you know, pre-visualization and stuff like that. Uh, and it's not necessarily the method I was taught. Like mm-hmm. I kind of got shown each little bit of it and I just gravitated towards all of it mm-hmm. because what I found is that no matter how much I pr- do in pre-production, like 40% of it just goes out the door the moment you walk on set. But at least I have a super solid base for 60% and I can adjust quickly to that 40%. Mm-hmm. If I had to come on set and just come up with 100% of it on set, you know, or even 80%, if I had a decent shot list, but everything else is just like, oh, we'll block when we get there. Like, I don't know how I would get through, especially with like low budget short films where we're trying to pump out seven pages a day, mm-hmm. like without having that blocking in my head, having done it on a floor map, I don't know how I would get through that day. So it's kind of like being 110% pre-prepared mm-hmm. helps you be 60% prepared when you walk on set. Yeah, yeah. Which is awesome because it's also that other 40% that you'll be amazed by when you when you get back. So you do a lot of prep, which is important. Uh, um, you know, I think that's I think that's one of the biggest things uh, is making sure you know what you need and what you want from every single actor, what you want from all your crew, how you're going to come in and direct and schedule because you're leading. Like you, when you're on set as a director, you're in charge. Mm-hmm. Is that nervous? Do you still get nervous before the first day of shooting or is it natural to you now? Um, the weird thing is when it comes to going on set, I've, I've never gotten nervous. Like I, I stress about everything happening, but I don't consider the stress the same as the, as nervous. Cause I just don't have nerves. Like I just want to get on set and I want to see this picture in my head come to life. Like I'm so anxious and excited to see it that I just don't have nerves, um, directing. Um, again, like, do I have a ton of stress about everything going wrong? You know, absolutely. You know, because it does, that's just the way it happened. Like even like I was telling you this gimbal, like literally we got a pretty cool shot with it, but the gimbal died like six times because apparently the moment you get the gimbal on a jib, it's too far away from its remote control and it just kept losing balance. And it was like, Oh man, are you kidding me? Like this is the one shot that I thought would be so cool in my brain. And it's like not going to happen, but you know, that's just, it's it's the low budget and the short films and the indies that help you learn how to get past those instances and find things that are even better than you even imagine when you walk on set. Right. You know? Right. So let's move on to Otter Theory Production. How'd you get the name? <laughs> so ironically, I have the last name Otter, which got really lucky because Wait, it's- so I, so I need to check my notes on that. Just one second. <laughs> Josh Otter. Yep. That's right. Okay. Yeah. So I- extremely lucky to have a name that's very close to auteur so I thought it was kind of funny and interesting to you know I I don't in any way consider myself an auteur I think at this level that's a little bit arrogant but I thought it was kind of funny that the name is so close and I had a teacher that kind of joke with me about it so I just you know called it Otter Theory Productions. Nice how long have you had the production company? Um, It's been an official LLC in California for I think four 
years. Okay. But we've been running under the name even since the stuff I made back in Vegas. So like, you know, eight, eight years or something like that. When did you decide to kind of like make a production company, make it official? The moment you start doing things where you're dealing with like Film LA and SAG and stuff like that, I don't think it's... I mean, I don't know. I'm not a lawyer, but I didn't think it was wise to do that um, on a personal liability basis. So I did officially start it up as an LLC and I run everything under the LLC. So, you know, the interactions with, uh, you know, liability companies and stuff like that are, are separate from, you know, I can't accidentally damage my entire, you know, family just by making a mistake on a film set. Right. Know? Absolutely. Um, now, we, we spoke, talked about your wife a little earlier about how she kind of is the executive mm -hmm. uh, producer and does a lot of the office stuff and a lot of the background stuff for the, the company. Um, and if this is dangerous water, she can let me know. You can say pass on this. But um, how is y'all's working relationship as opposed to your uh, personal relationship? Does it or is it kind of blended? I think it's... I think because we have that bond, it's it's like really great. Like she's, again, not only is she the one person always looking out for me, she's the one person that can always read me on set too. And so I, I can't lose my stuff in front of the entire crew, but she knows when I'm about to lose my stuff. So she'll walk over and be like, oh, hey, come look at this, you know? So it, it benefits to have somebody, you know, I, I notice a lot, like I think um, like Christopher Nolan's wife, I think produces a lot of his projects and stuff like that. I think it helps to have that person that can truly like read you from a distance on set and can kind of help guide other scenarios. Like if she knows that I'm having a frustration with a certain area of the production she can step in and help and allow me to stay focused on creative mm -hmm. and again like somebody else probably wouldn't even notice that i'm getting irritated by that segment so it helps to have somebody that can read you that well you do you know? guys have rules to separate the personal and the professional so it doesn't blend in too much or doesn't take over your personal life um or personal relationship i wouldn't say there's rules per se but she she's never like she she likes kind of staying back in the office while we're shooting and kind of just watching the monitor from the side and stuff like that. So it's never been where she's been one to jump in and say, you know, oh, you should consider shooting from this angle. That's just not anything she would even like want to do. So it doesn't become, you know, an issue or anything like that. There's right. never kind of that cross where people see that she's, you know, stepping into different areas of the production. Right. Um, I think she kind of likes those other areas. So it's a good separation. Right. You know? do, you, do you have any issues with like, you're never getting away from the work. Like it's always being like never having time to be just married, a married couple and not executive producer, director uh, of the company type type of issues. Or is it, or, or does that work for you guys? Is that something that just as you, you guys are comfortable with? I don't know. I think maybe, maybe her answer would be different than mine. Like it doesn't. <laughs> is, this, is this a danger? Is this the danger? No, no, no. I'm saying like for me, like she's she never seems to be frustrated by it. So like I'm always kind of in film. Like again, I don't necessarily like want to be an editor, but I almost always end up editing my projects again because on short films it's kind of hard to find somebody that can hone in on specifically what you were thinking for that eight minute short or something like mm -hmm. that, you know? So, and like they don't on an eight minute, the budget you can afford to pay them. They don't have the time to kind of work back and forth with edits. So I start editing. So I'm kind of like always doing something related to the films. And I, I guess it helps too that, um, unfortunately, cause she does have to go off to the day job. That's a little further away. Like there's like a gap in the day. So I get off of work for my day job at like two 30 or three in the afternoon. And she's normally not home until six or six 30. So I even have like three and a half hours a day. 
I guess it helps that like uh, like I said, she works um, down in Santa Monica, and because of traffic and travel and her day job, she normally doesn't get home until around six or six thirty. And with my job working for a company on the East Coast and working from home, having having no commute, I'm done by about two thirty or three. So I have like three to three and a half hours to kind of like really focus on all my film stuff. And so I don't think she's completely inundated by it when she gets home like it's kind of I've already had my time to continue working on that stuff too you know so I'll throw edits by her and stuff like that or I'll have her come in and, and look at a clip you know but it's normally not like the moment she gets home like it's a couple hours worth of film stuff like I'll just throw a few things at her and then you know we'll talk about the next production or what we're doing in post and stuff like that and, and then kind of move on with the rest of the day oh and nice yeah that's, a, that's always that's always helpful um where do you think you are Every director has their style. Every, you know, you can tell a Steven Spielberg movie over a Christopher Nolan movie in a lot of ways. Um, the way they tell the story, what their focus is on the characters and how they shoot it. Um, do you think you have found your style? Or are you still working towards it? I think I'm still working towards it. Um, I know, like, visually, like, I believe, like, my strength is probably, I mean, everybody else might disagree. They'll go on my website and like, what's this guy talking about? But I think my strength is definitely um, shot composition. And where I'm trying to grow is is more actually working with the actors to build that character. You know, luckily for me, um, I can tell you this story too, but I have a really solid casting director who, who's, you know, due to her industry connections is able to find me extremely talented people. So it all, it always helps. Like if you already have, you know, if you're not trying to, to work with somebody that's, you know, really trying to learn their way acting too, it kind of can really build you as a director. Like, I think it would be different for me if I was coming on and working constantly with like student actors, you know, and like me trying to learn how to interact with them while they're trying to learn how to be on a set and stuff. But the advent, the advantage of having her as a casting director and the people she can get me, I'm already working with people that are pretty much, you know, active supporting, you know, guest star day players that know what they're doing and it helps me grow along with them. Absolutely. You know, what, what is your style working? And you said you were in like a directing actors mm -hmm. class. What is your style in relationship with working with actors? So one thing I definitely don't like, uh, and I think it's because they're talking to them. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love, I love interacting with actors. Like I think watching them take a character and, and manipulate it how they feel they need to is, is like one of the most amazing things about seeing your creation, you know? Um, but one thing I, and again, I think it's because of the type of films I make, but I don't like rehearsal at all. Um, because, Again, if, if I was doing like a sci-fi movie with like big budget and a lot of action, like you need to rehearse those kind of things. But when you're talking about drama, I don't like to rehearse with actors because, yeah, I don't like rehearsals with dramas just because I feel like you're always chasing that, that performance in rehearsal. Like once you lock in on something, you're like, oh, I want that. And then on set, if you, you're like chasing that performance and not open to the performance you might be getting at that moment. But what I do really like, especially with, you know, with professional actors is, is a, like even a, a character meeting beforehand, like sitting down with them and just reviewing the script and let, allowing them to act, ask questions like, where do you see this guy coming from? Where do you see this girl coming from? Where do you, what was their life like? What, you know, what would their interactions be with this? What would their experiences be here? And I love seeing how they take that information and how they translate it. So I think my style is, is what I always try to do is just give them 
the outlines and the creations of the character and the moments and the scenes and see where they take it and then adjust that accordingly as we need to. Like I always, I, I, I never, I at least consciously try to never do just straight up like line readings, like, no, do it like this. You know, mm-hmm. I just don't think that that allows them the ability to f- feel the performance and to get with the character. If you're telling them how to be the character, mm-hmm. you know, so. So I, I want to go through a little bit just of each the process of making a film um, bit by bit and mm-hmm. just kind of the, each part of it, especially someone that is very much ahead, uh, the head of like that process. Um, so let's start with like the script. Mm-hmm. What is your process for writing? What is it, what, what makes you comfortable in writing a script? So I'm still at the phase where I write what I know. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I think I hope to get, I think I'll always have pieces of me in a script, obviously, like you can't write something that's not you, but I'm still writing things that are very heavily me. And I, and I don't mean that in the sense of like, um, I write about my life cause that's boring. Oh, if you wrote about your life, your life is very dark. <laughs> very true. But it's the ability to take pieces of your life and conform them in a way that you think might be interesting. Like the, like land of happy dreams. Um, it's a, it's about a single mother whose daughter has a rare blood disease and she has to go to extreme means to find that. Like, I don't have a daughter. I'm, I'm not a single mother obviously, but we, my wife and I, when we were just got together and, and we were still kind of struggling financially, we had a, a little dog and he got a disease called Addison's disease and he required a shot like every month and it was literally like like $180 a month and and it was like look that's i mean that's our kid like we'll do what we have to do and so it always like stuck in my brain like what would you do like how far would you go to facilitate this so just a little moment like that of something that occurred in my life like stuck in my brain that i then turned into a story about a single mother instead and her daughter needs this and what she does to get it so i'm still with writing in the phase of where i find things amongst my life and try to conform them um, into into something I think is interesting. Mm-hmm. So do, would you say you, you get the idea and then build the story out of just the log line pretty much? Yeah, yeah, I'm pretty much there. Like um, there's a feature that I'm working right on right now that I've actually lived through a lot of it. So um, it's more like I already had that kind of outline just by experiencing it. But some of it is just like you said, like I kind of just get a concept or an idea or a log line and kind of try to build off of that. That's very cool. Um, So you have the script, it's written, you've shown your wife the 800th uh, draft of it. Um, Where do you go, how do you build your team? Uh, Where do you meet the people that become part of your team? Uh, For those listening out there like, I wanna make something, but how do I get a team? So the one thing that I found when I first moved here was to never assume that the other people on set doing grunt work with you want to be doing grunt work. So, so I guess to take that a step back, like when I moved here, I just tried to get on set. There's no place other, I mean, other than film school, there's no place to meet people that want to make movies other than on a movie set. So I just started trying to do anything, PAing or, you know, being a first AC or a second AC, whatever I could find to just get on movie sets and meet people. And then while on those sets, I've, found a way to kind of just walk around to people and be like, oh, hey, what, what are you doing? And they'd say, oh, I'm an office production assistant. I was like, oh, but what do you want to be doing? Cause office production maybe, assistant. Maybe, yeah. Get back. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a potential, but yeah. like um, the person I told you about earlier, my casting director, her name's Beth Ryan. 
Um, Shout I, out to Beth Rain. Yeah, Beth's amazing. Give me a call. <laughs> I have headshots. Yeah, she's well. So, so I'll tell you that story, right? We were my. I just moved here, and I was starting film school. I knew nobody. My wife had started as a temp at a law firm, and. Everybody in LA has wanted to be an actor at some point. So the receptionist was like, you know, oh, I'm, I'm an actress and a friend of mine is filming this little web series. Does your husband want to go work on it? It's like, yeah, absolutely. I'll go work. So I just showed up day one as a, as going to be like an office PA and the kind of production manager in the office, we were sitting around like running things back and forth to set. And I asked the question, like, what do you, what do you want to be doing? And she said, oh, you know, ideally I'd love to be casting someday. I'd, I'd love to be in the casting department. So time goes by, you know, um, we kept in touch a little bit online and stuff. And then I wanted to make a movie and I said, I reached out to her and I said, look, I'm like, who am I? I'm just a guy trying to make my way. And so are you. So do you want to cast my project? Yeah. It's like, you can't do any worse than I could. Right. And she was already like kind of breaking her way into the industry. She'd done some, um, assisting work for some Showtime series and stuff like that. And, uh, and she said, absolutely. So she came on as casting director and now she works for, you know, I won't say who, but one of the top casting directors in the entire city. That's fantastic. And, and still is willing and still does, she's the director of casting for all of my projects, um, just based on that one question of like, what, what would you want to be doing in this industry? So it's always, always when you're on set, keep yourself open to the people around you and what their skills might be beyond what they're doing at that moment. It may be what they're doing at that moment. And I've met, you know, a, I, I met a guy that does video playback and I, I said, what do you want? He's like, this, this, I love video playback. And I'm like, cool, you know, so if I have an opportunity to use that skill set, then I will. But if there's other things where they want to be growing and I have the opportunity without, you know, in any way what I perceive damaging my story to let them grow with me, then it's worth that shot, you know, and it's built some great relationships. That's you know? fantastic. Now, obviously, you need money to, to make your films, yeah. sadly. Yeah. Uh, uh, let's we, We've talked about it a little bit in the past with some other people, but um, crowdfunding is very huge now. Um, now, you used something that not a lot of people know about, a, a place called Seed and Spark, yes. um, where I think you have to submit your idea, and they have to approve it, mm -hmm. correct? Yeah. Um, and then you can also, if you want, I think, publish it on their website, yeah. Idea, right? Yeah. Um, what just kind of go real quick through that process and the how that felt to be crowdfunding and what you did to try to make it you know get there it was for your movie uh, 12 step yeah so Seed and Spark was a really cool site. Like not only the things that you mentioned, but they also have different little concepts. Like people can, if pe people can't give you money, they can potentially loan you production stuff. So if you say on there, like I want to shoot on a red and somebody has one, like they may not be able to loan you money, but they can say, Hey, I'll loan you my camera for the shoot. And you can knock the value of that rental off of your budget, you know? And so they can contribute items as well. Or they can even like, if you say, um, you kind of do a budget for Seed and Spark instead of just asking for an amount of money. You put in budgetary items, and if you say like, "Oh, I'm looking to pay an an AD two hundred dollars for the shoot," somebody can come on and say, "Here's my resume. I'm I'm one. Can I do it instead?" And and then they can contribute that two hundred dollars worth of value. So it's a cool concept in how they do it and trying to build more of a film community and run it like a like a production type site instead of just like, "Oh, I need this money and here's some items." Mm -hmm. um, but it's still tough, man. Like. I'm not a big um, social media guy. I kind of, I use Twitter more as like a news feed for following the industry. I don't really know how to like, ex like expose myself on Twitter. <laughs> I don't mean it like that. Um, no. I can figure out how to expose myself on Twitter, but I don't think you guys want that going on. Um, you may get reported. <laughs> 
But like, I don't know how to really grow my following. I only have like 60 some people follow me or something. Um, so crowdfunding for me was really tough. Um, it was, it almost became like a full-time job and it needs to, it needs to become like a full-time job. And when you're already trying to, you know, write and direct and partially produce and, and likely edit and everything for a short film, it was really kind of taxing. Like it, it was difficult, um, for the 12th step. Uh, it kind of ended up just me like beg barn and stealing from family, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of unfortunately for a lot of people because there's just so much out there now that is trying to crowdfund. Mm-hmm. Um, that you're really, you know, you're screaming in a crowd of, of millions, you know? Well, I think it's almost just like, you know, starting making films, you have to build your following. Right. So you do one uh, project that gets maybe partially funded mm-hmm. or, you know, semi-funded. You go make it. It's, it's decent. It's pretty good. So you have that to add to like a reel. And then you, okay, we're going to make this. So the people that did that come in and maybe you get some new people from whatever you made before. And it's just completely building on each thing as you go forth, uh, you know, and it does take over your life. I remember how excited I was when this, when our Kickstarter for this was over because I was so tired of posting on social media about yeah. it. It was, it, it, you literally need someone usually to run it yeah. for you. And, and that is their sole purpose. Yeah, totally. You know? um, what was your strategy? Was it just, if, especially did you just kind of tweet as much as you could about it and just kind of throw it out there? Did you, personally email people kind of what did you do to get the word out there yeah i mean my strategy off the bat was to to not try not to do just like the traditional like pitch video like oh this is me and i want to make a movie instead we actually tried to shoot like a a mini prequel to the film like this is so it was a um the 12 step was about um uh an alcoholic who had you know had some rough times and was in aa but you know had come across some people that were making him remember his past. And so we shot this thing that would have been like his childhood in essence showing his dad as an alcoholic and you know, the environment he grew up in totally detached from the movie. But I was like, it'd be kind of cool if like the pitch video was almost like a little prequel of where did this idea, not, not the idea of the script, but where did this character come from? And so that was out of the gate what we were trying to do differently. Uh, Michael played the alcoholic <laughs> and he had to kick a beer can at a little kid. <laughs> what, a, so what a jerk. <laughs> I mean, he did that to my son the other day. Let's not be felt too bad for it. Um, so that was kind of the strategy out of the gate. Um, I think you have to, whether that worked or not, I do think you have to do something to try to differentiate. There's just too many people who just sit in front of the camera and saying, I want to make a movie and, you know. This is what we're going to use the movie for. Right. And yeah. thank you for listening. Yeah, so that was the strategy um, from the beginning. And then during the campaign was yeah, just trying to stay engaged. Like, um, again, Seed and Spark's kind of different. Like, they want it to be a community. It's not like you just donate money. You, like, start following the film and stuff like that. So when people follow you on there, you try to engage with them and build a community, to your point. And these are people that um, the, the Seed and Spark really tries to keep them as fans of the filmmaker and not the particular film. So, so that community continues to grow and you can continue to interact with them even after that one campaign. So we still, we really try to stay like engaged with the people, but to be honest, like to your point, I've kind of taken a different, I haven't crowdfunded either of the last two because I went the approach you discussed of, I'm just going to try to build content and 
expose that content to people and try to make it into festivals and hope that people see the value of my work. And then maybe a couple down the road, like when we want to shoot a feature or something, we'll go at it with that from a crowdfunding stance, because then we can, we have content to back us up. Like we're not just uh, a, a bunch of, you know, schmoes trying to take your money and like we can show you quality, what we feel is quality content. You can turn your money into something. Right. Exactly. Yeah. You know, it's kind of like, you know, like even IMDB, like when you first submit something in pre-production, you have to say like, look at the value of the people that are attached. That proves that we will make this movie, mm -hmm. you know? Absolutely. So like we said at the beginning, you recently had your most recent film, Land of, uh, Land of Happy Dreams, um, in the uh, Dances with Films Festival here in LA. Uh, how did that go about? What was the process of submitting that? And, and how long did it take before you heard that you got in? Just kind of go over that with us a little bit. Yeah, uh, first of all, it was amazing. Like, I don't know if you know much about Dance with the Films, but it's, uh, it's, it's kind of got, it, like I said, it was their 20th year, so obviously they're doing something right. They've been going for a while, and they've grown quite a bit of a following. And the big kicker for me is they're one of the few that's actually, it's at the Chinese theater. Mm -hmm. um, as a kid who wore out three versions of Star Wars on VHS, like to me, the epitome of a movie premiere was all those people lined up outside the Chinese theater to see Star Wars. So to even be able to tell friends and family that like my film is premiering at that theater was beyond my wildest dreams. Congratulations. Yeah. I mean, it, it was like, it was one of those things I could have never like, you know, obviously I want to keep going, but it's like, man, that's like, that's, if, that's it, if that happens to be it. Yeah. Like you, that's you a pretty awesome. A yeah. Milestone. You know, so the submission process for all festivals is pretty, pretty long. Like you submit, I think I submitted for that in December. I mean, in November actually even. And then you don't hear until about a month before festivals. So they want you to submit like six to seven months before their festival. And then they don't select until about a month out. So you have this whole window of time where you've, I think, I think some will take like partial films, but I'm not that kind of guy. Like I want to have everything. I want to give you the best product I can give you. So I don't submit partially completed products. I, I finish it and then I submit it. And then like, if I submit something in November, the first one I'm going to hear from is until like April or May. Mm -hmm. So you got like this five month window where you just kind of sit in there. So you got to have patience, <laughs> a lot of patience. Yeah. And, um, we actually got accepted to one in Pennsylvania. Um, and then immediately after that, Dances the Films contacted us and said, we're extremely interested in your film, but we would want to be the premier location. So we had to like take a leap of faith and back out of one that we'd already been accepted to on the chance that we would make it in. But the truth is, I wait, I'm like, look, you know, no offense, but I'm probably not going to break out by having a film play in, in a t small town in Pennsylvania. It's more likely to be at the Chinese theater. So it was worth the risk for me to take that. And then they're very um, into like communication throughout the process. Most of the festivals you submit, you can put in a nice cover letter and then you either get accepted or not. Um, with them, they were really kind of moving you through the process like like two months out. They said, oh, you're still in the running. Here's a couple questions for you. Like, why did you make this movie? What, is this, what does this movie mean to you? And then like uh, uh, three, four weeks later, it's like, oh, now you're in the third round of selection. You've, you're one of only a couple hundred left. So what is your hopes to achieve with this film and stuff? So this is kind of a cool process. Like, I guess some maybe would be annoyed by, but as a as a young filmmaker, I mean, an early filmmaker, it was cool to me to see the different levels of concern and care for, like they didn't just want to show my film. They wanted to know, 
not only why I made the film and what the intent was with it, but also where I hope to take it and what I was using it for and stuff it like that. It wasn't about the film, it was also about the maker. Right, right? exactly. There's a lot of self-reflection right. that kind of comes out of it too. Yeah, so um, so then, yeah, we, we made the, the final cut and we premiered in uh, early June. Uh, it was... Is really awesome. Um, it's not the the main room of the Chinese. It's the 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 um, the six behind. But they take theater one of that, which is the biggest theater of the multiplex. So it's like I think like seats like five hundred people, mm-hmm. and um, we were in a block of seven other short films. I was too nervous to turn around, but it looked like the room was pretty much sold out. So um, it was pretty amazing to not, not only be able to go to the Chinese, have a premiere, walk the carpet, be interviewed, but to see so many people showing support. It was a Tuesday night, you know, right. but it's awesome to see that this town still cares enough to support, you know, a small block of short films on a Tuesday and pack the house and try to, uh, you know, help us move forward. You Can know? you put into words the feeling like when the film started and it's in the Chinese theater where Star Wars premiered and right across from El Capitan where everybody, you know, the Disney films premiere and on Hollywood Boulevard, like the 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 um, the dream mecca of a film, Hollywood Boulevard, you know, Chinese theater. What? How is that feeling when it started? So that was the nerves. Like I don't get nerves going on film set, but when everybody's sitting around you and about to watch it, that's when you get nervous. Mm-hmm. And like I'm sitting right next to the lead actress and her mom and dad drove in from oh, San Francisco wow. and my mom drove all the way from Vegas and we had a lot of friends and family there. Said, so that's be good. Please be good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're like, man, what is, you know, and there is some some interesting content in my film, you know. She mm-hmm. it's not it's not horrible, but she, you know, um does a little bit of street walking and stuff. So like, so like her mom is like two seats over and I'm like, Oh man, this is going to be super uncomfortable. Um, but it was amazing like to see. So yeah, it was, you know, it was kind of, it's nerve wracking. Everybody in the room is, is judging your art, you know? Um, and everything you've put so much time and effort into, but by the same token, like it's playing in one of the, like, like even, even the theater itself, like, being aside from the Chinese, it's they kept telling us it's like one of the most calibrated theaters in the in the country. I had to go through things I didn't even like budget for. Like traditionally, these festivals like they'll take a Blu-ray or or a um, QuickTime file or something. But like literally, there I had to have a, a DCP made specifically for the theater, which you know costs extra, and you have to preview them, and you have to you know rent out a preview house and stuff. So other things, but it's like it's playing on like one of the nicest, most calibrated systems in the world. It's nothing like you could ever imagine, right. you know? So that's, was, congratulations. Thank you. Like, yeah. It's pretty that's cool. That's fantastic. Yeah. Now, when it was playing, were you just like listening for every reaction? Like if anybody made a sound, were you like, what was it? <laughs> was that, was that a groan? Yeah. You kind of like, <laughs> you can't help it. You're like, you're like, man, are people like laughing where they're not supposed to laugh? Are they, why did they laugh yeah. at that? That's not funny. That's yeah. Really serious. Yeah. I mean, you get nervous about everything, you know, but, right. um, I think it just comes with the territory of, of once you put it out there, you got to expect that, you know, some of the world won't get it and some of them will. Is that your first big screen premiere? So the 12 step played at a couple, it played in New York, which we were unfortunately unable to go to. And it played at a couple places here in LA. It played in um, the Lamley theater in North Hollywood and it played in uh, Monrovia and stuff like that. So we saw that play in a couple places, but this was the only festival that had, you know, a lot of support, large theater. Uh, so yeah, it was kind of, I've seen my movies play amongst a crowd, but nothing like this. That's you awesome. know? Well, again, yeah. congratulations. Yeah, that's, thank that's you. That's so awesome. It was cool. Uh, so just kind of to wind down uh, through the conversation, 
Um, I have kind of a list of some of the stuff that you do. Uh, uh, um, and I just, I'm just going to kind of say the, the job or the profession. And if you have any advice, just general advice or advice for that, just kind of throw it out there for our listeners. Um, actors. So Beth always has said a statement to me, and it's come true many, many times, and it's book the room, not the gig. And I, I mean, as a director, I was like, well, what is she saying? And what she means by that is like, there have been many times where she's been, you know, sitting in casting sessions for the, the top level casting writer she works with. And she's seen people that come in and they weren't right for that part, but they just blew her away. Like they're, they booked the performance, not that they, they gave the best they could whether they got that gig or not. And a couple, even the, the lead actress for Land of Happy Dreams came about because she uh, auditioned for a role and she didn't get it, but Beth was extremely impressed by her performance and called me up like two months later and said, we should consider this woman. She was amazing. I watched her reel and, and we offered her the part. So I would say like whether, whether you think that you got that role or not, just give the best you can and you'll be remembered for, for yourself as an actor, not for yourself auditioning for that part. Oh, fantastic. Know? That's awesome. Um, writer. Um, I think it still goes back to, for me, when you first start out, write what you know. Like, it's, again, everybody wants to make a Marvel movie. Like, we all want to. Like, I would take a $200 million budget and do crazy cool stuff with it. Come on, give me a chance, you know? But, like... Marvel, we, and obviously Marvel, Kevin Feige is listening. <laughs> he does listen to the show. He's a very uh, outspoken fan of this show. Yeah, well, if he checks out my reel, he's not hiring me for a Marvel movie right now. <laughs> he's like, oh, we got this drama where 18 people die. Um, you need to change, just put uh, uh, Tony Stark in the 12th step. Yeah, that's just right. remake it with Tony that's Stark. That's true, yeah, there. exactly. <laughs> um but I do think that it comes across if you're trying to write for an audience and not write for yourself. Like I think when you're first starting out, you just have to write for yourself and, and the stories that you want to get out in the world and the stories that mean something to you because those are always a million times better. And then as you learn to do those, you'll learn how to take small tidbits and ideas and turn them into something that might be more uniform or successful across the industry. But you have to start somewhere. and. And again, you have to start from a seed that's natural to you and a seed that you can fulfill in yourself, you know? Mm -hmm. So I, I would say write what you know, you know? And, and obviously directing. For directing, it's, there's no place better to, to meet people that want to make movies and to learn how to make a movie than being on a set and however you can get on a set. Like I said, I would go on as just a production assistant and run around and do whatever they needed. And then even like that, luckily even got me promoted the the one that i met beth on i started out for the first two days of the shoot as a production assistant and their ac ducked out and i'd done assistant camera work in a, two other shorts previously so they moved me over to that and, and i got to meet a whole new group of people and stuff like that so it's just you got to get on set to to learn how to work in a set you know no matter how small it is um and the other thing that i find that that i've kind of tried to learn and who knows if i learned it or not is like there's always jewels amongst the dirt. Like when you send somebody an edit, they've got a million ideas of how they could, how you could, it could be better. Like, oh man, if you'd done this, it'd be so much great. And like, take or leave their ideas. It's your concept. You got to own it. But there's, you, you always have to look at why they question those pieces, right? Like if somebody says to me, you know, 
the beginning of the movie didn't work, you should have done this. I'll normally discard that you should have done this, but the beginning of the movie didn't work for me as a valid argument. So you have to stop being like so defensive and like writing them off because they're, I would have done this as garbage. Like it probably was like, that's not the movie I wanted to make. But by the same token, it's valid to hear that the beginning did not work. So you have to be open to the jewels that might be amongst the dirt of suggestions you receive. Even from the worst suggestions, I still try to analyze why they felt they needed to give me that note, you know? Um, and finally, like cre just creators in general. So one thing that I really learned is that nobody does or should love your project a tenth as much as you do. Like, it's just the truth. Like, you want them to. You want you want every grip on set to think that your movie's the greatest on the planet and to support it till the ends of the earth, but they're just not gonna. And that's not, you shouldn't expect that. Nobody should care about your project as tenth a tenth as much as you do, and they're gonna see that. Like, if they see that you just, you care about this project no more than they do, and you're the creator, you're the whole driving force, they're not gonna give you their best effort. If they can look at you and see that this film means everything to you, whether they love it or not, you're gonna get the best of them, right? right. So I've always found, like, don't expect other people to love your work as much as you do. Like right. you need to be, you need to be the one owning it and driving it. That's fantastic. That's, that's, that's fantastic advice. Like literally that's fantastic advice. Yeah. Um, what do you have coming up over the next few months? So, um, the dances with the films were the first festival, but we got a whole bunch. Like, obviously, like I said, the cycle was we submitted in November. So we're supposed to like, there's four that we're hoping to hear from this month. So mm -hmm. we're just kind of pushing that through and kind of using that premiere. Like I've sent out letters to other festivals submitted, kind of updating them. Like, mm -hmm. look, this, you know, we made this premiere. Here's, there's been some reviews online of it. So check them out. So we're trying to push that through to other festivals. Um, I just wrapped a short, like I said, a week and a half ago. So that's in post-production. It's kind of the most visual effects heavy film that I've ever done. So it's going to be in post for a while. But it, I did it specifically for that reason. I wanted to hone in on those new skills and like learn how to interact better with the, with the visual effects supervisors. Um, and like I said, I'm kind of taking a small hiatus probably for, from shooting short films for a couple of months and trying to finish a feature that I've been working on for a I, long time. I, I really hope you're going to say you're trying to get the punk band back together. <laughs> <laughs> no, but the feature is based on stuff that I witnessed while in that world. Oh, nice. So, Very yeah. cool. Uh, where can people find your, 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 your shorts? Where can people find you and, and, and contact you or interact with you? So everything about me is under Otter Theory, which is A-U-T-E-R Theory. So my Twitter is at Otter Theory. My Instagram's at Otter Theory. I just started using Instagram like five days ago. I'm so old. Congratulations. Um, <laughs> so ridiculous. I'm like an old man. It's like, I just learned that Instagram. What's a pic? <laughs> but we put a bunch, of, a bunch of cool behind the scenes photos from the one we shot the other day. Um, so you can check that out. My website's OtterTheory.com. Uh, we're on Facebook as Otter Theory, so kind of just everywhere under that name. Nice, you know. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for being here. No, no, that thanks was for me, a dude. fantastic conversation. It's awesome. Just it, it inspired me. Just like I want to go write and make something right now. Like heck with the second part. Let's, let's go. <laughs> uh, but I thank you. I hope you'll stay for a little bit of roundtable discussion with Michael here. Absolutely. Uh, but thank you so much, Josh. No, really thanks for having me, dude. That was awesome. Awesome. Uh, well, uh, back to you, Daniel and Michael in the studio. That was fantastic. Uh, Josh, you know, it's funny. He talks about how he is kind of an introvert. He's kind of shy. 
and it was so interesting because I was kind of worried like oh, I hope you know he opens up and I hope I can get him to share and you know it's, it gives some really cool stories and man he was so great he did such a great job and and I felt like he was really comfortable with me and Michael which I know him and Michael kind of go way back so that wasn't a surprise but I, I was so happy that he was comfortable with me I, I had met him once before so uh, thank you so much, uh, Josh, if you're listening, for coming on and sharing that. Some of the things that were brought up in the in this first part, I really want to kind of uh, just kind of note that I think are kind of important. The first one is, you know, networking on a set. Um, I think that's going to be brought up a lot in the interviews with the people we talk to. You know, Josh says, don't think that the person next to you doing grunt work wants to be doing grunt work. Um, he doesn't, you know, nobody just wants to be a personal assistant or a PA. They're doing that to get to somewhere else. So, you know, talking to them and letting them know, hey, uh, what are you actually doing? What are you trying to work towards? And then building that team, giving them opportunities, uh, good opportunities to build their portfolio. Um, who's not going to take that, you know? And especially if you save enough money where you can give them a little cash for it, it's even better. And you're, you never know. Uh, you never know what they're going to become, who they're going to be, who they're going to end up working for. Uh, if they're going to be working for, you know, if their dad is Steven Spielberg's light designer or if they're going to end up working for Marvel or Disney or Universal, you know, you never know what they're going to be doing. So it's great to make those connections and make those friends. Again, I, I, I really emphasize make those friendships also. Make those friends. You know, see them as people and human beings, not just opportunities also. That's a really big thing. Build the relationship so you guys are comfortable working on set. You have that both sides, a professional side and a friend side. I think that's also really important as well. So I think that was some great advice that Josh threw out. Um, another thing, you know, is I ask questions on set. We had an interview recently. We haven't released it yet, but that where that was brought up, ask questions on set. If you don't know how something's done and you, are, you don't have anything to do, most people, as long as you're not in the way, are fine answering those questions. You know, what does that do? Why are you doing that? Why did you decide to use this lens over this lens for this shot? Um, most people are willing to help because that's how they learned. They learned on set by asking questions. So don't be afraid. If they tell you, hey, I, I don't have time, or if they, you know, read the room. Uh, but if it seems okay, ask the questions. It's fine. Uh, or ask them to have lunch with you afterwards, and then you can talk about it. Um, another thing that we talked about is sacrificing to do what you love. Um, I, I know Josh said it at the beginning of the episode uh, that do what you love for free as best as you can until someone realizes you should be paid for it. That is such a great quote. Um, I mean, that needs to be in a book somewhere. That is such a great quote. I don't know if he got it from somebody else, but you know that's so important to else also. Keep doing it. Keep pushing. Keep striving. Build the portfolio. Build your craft. Get better. Learn different things. Make Come up with different things yourself. And that way, when you do get the opportunity, you will wow somebody. You will wow them. And they will go, wow, I've never seen a shot like that. I've never seen that shot done that way. How did you do that? How did you, how did you have the budget to do that? Oh, well, we just, we just came up with this idea of doing this and you know taking some tape and doing this. Wow. So you know how to work on a budget. You know how to get something that most people can't even do for a billion-dollar budget with a $3,000 budget. That's incredible. So take chances and sacrifice for you the thing you love. You're not going to get paid a million dollars the first time out. 
Now, I'm also a proponent of not, not doing things strictly for free unless, you know, it's a friend. You know, that's fine. I get that. If a friend asks for your help, do it. I'm not saying that's a bad thing at all. But there are times when you have to understand where the line for free work and the line for I got to get paid for this happens. And that that's something everybody has to understand. We have to understand that as well, doing the show and other things that we do. But I think that's really important. Um, so love what you do. Find what you love. So that's not a job. It's just fun, no matter how you do it or what you do it for. So thank you so much for listening to Episode 1 with Josh Otter. Remember to follow us on our social media accounts. Uh, we are on Facebook at Hollywood Hustle Podcast, Instagram, Hollywood Hustle Podcast, uh, Twitter at LA Hustlecast. Please listen, let us know if you have any questions or your, any thoughts on what you've heard on the podcast today or any of the previous episodes. Or if you have something going on you want to tell us about, we're more than happy to share that uh, at the Hollywood Hustle Podcast at gmail.com. It's at Hollywood Hustle Podcast at gmail.com. On the next episode, Michael will be joining us for a roundtable discussion about finding your voice as an artist and what that truly means, the struggles of filming in the land of film, Los Angeles. And finally, we talk about sharing your dream with a full time job, how it hinders you. How do you stay driven and how can you make sure that you stay connected to your dream while you have this full-time job? All of this and more with Josh Otter on Thursday the 20th. It's going to be fantastic. Thank you again so much, everybody, for listening. And please, always remember to keep up the hustle. This episode of the Hollywood Hustle podcast was hosted by Daniel Tuttle and produced with Michael Lutheran. Kel Torados is our sound engineer, and Mike Tobias edited our website. For more information about the show, please visit our website at hollywoodhustlepodcast.com.